0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: Greetings and thanks for joining us on A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, the editor of A Better Peace and a professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College. Today we're bringing you an episode that's part of our ongoing series on the emerging environment in the Indo-Pacific region. And this series has been produced in collaboration with the Department of Social Science at the United States Military Academy as part of the 2019 Senior Conference. The conference provides a forum for distinguished scholars, practitioners, and government officials to engage in candid discussions on topics of national security importance. Senior Conference is made possible by the generous support of the Rupert S. Johnson Grand Strategy Program and the Association of Graduates. And War Room is proud to help continue this conversation online. One of the central features of the Indo-Pacific region is the importance of alliances and partnerships. For the United States, five of its seven mutual defense treaties are in this AOR and working together with partners on issues from deterrence to proliferation to security to humanitarian assistance and disaster relief is a critical element of strategy. But these alliances and partnerships require plenty of care and maintenance. They don't always come easily. And so I'm pleased to have two guests with me in the studio today to talk about alliances and partnerships in Indo-PACOM. First is Dr. Tanvi Madan. She is a fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution and the Director of the India Project. She is an expert on Indian security and on India's relations with China and the United States. Hi, Jackie. Thanks. And second is Miss Lindsay Ford. Lindsay is the director of political security affairs and Richard Holbrook Fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute. She previously served in a number of roles in the office of the Secretary of Defense from 2009 to 2015 and most recently as a senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Asia Pacific Security Affairs. So, Lindsay, welcome to War Room. Hi, Jackie, thanks. All right, so we'll start off with a sort of conceptual question, which is why are alliances and partnerships so important in the Indo-PACOM region?
0: Thanks. So, I think that one thing that's important to keep in mind when we're talking about alliances and partnerships um, is the thing that's unique about U.S. alliances um, over the past 70 years, we, the original conception of these relationships may have been very much um, about our uh, defense and military interest and what we were trying to achieve in the region, but because they've endured for such a long time, the impact of them has been far broader than just the defense or the military realm. Um, And they really serve a strategic purpose for the United States in the Indo-Pacific region. So in the economic lane, there's reasonable evidence that shows that countries who we have a close security alliance with, actually we tend to have closer trade relationships and better economic ties with them as well when we think about political relationships, the strategic alignment um, that we tend to have with our close allies and partners pays off in things um, like setting rules and norms in the region and building institutions. Um, So the impact of these relationships goes much, uh, much broader than just simply we have a defense pact with each mm-hmm. other. Um, and I think that's really important to keep in mind because if you're thinking about, if you're the United States, what's the biggest uh, bang for your buck way of trying to preserve security in the Indo-Pacific region, um, close treaty alliances and partners who will work alongside you, not simply in the military realm, but on a range of issues that you wanna work on, is just basically the best way to go about doing business
1: yeah so this is a part of the broader conversation about the liberal international order which includes economics, diplomacy, military um, all of the sort of norms and institutions and values that are shared maybe across um, across partners but this also brings up I think some of the some of the challenges which is to say that not everyone is aligned on all issues all the time. So there are disagreements, and there's plenty of diversity in the region. And um, Tanvi, your area of expertise is India, and India has maybe one of, I think it's one of the most interesting, but also um, one of the the most complicated relationships with the United States, um, because it has areas of clear alignment, but also competition, and that, that has existed historically as well, so maybe you can talk about that.
2: So it's interesting, I mean, one of the things that you think about um, is India very much fits in that partner category, and there is a difference between kind of alliances with security commitments and defense backs, but these kind of group partners, and arguably um, for a number of reasons, um, partly because of capability, ability to burden share, India has been considered kind of almost a partner plus. So the term that's been almost invented for India is major defense partner, because it's not, (laughs) you can use major non-NATO ally because it has the word ally and India doesn't like that word, but major defense partner. And you've had kind of an Indian prime minister saying, you know, the US is a preferred uh, partner or principal partner uh, for, to support India's rise. And I think Part of this has been the challenge for the US and India is, there are no direct disputes as such, you know, trade frictions, things like that, but essentially they share, a, largely share a vision of the region. You know, They've talked about a free, open, inclusive, prosperous, uh, secure re- uh, uh, region that, is, um, that has a certain kind of stability, that it's a rules-based order. India doesn't use the term liberal international order for various reasons, even though it is uh, a dem- democracy itself. Um, But one of the challenges has been for the U.S. and India in the last kind of 10, 15 years particularly is learning how to deal with each other. Because on the one hand, you have a country like the U.S. that's been used to dealing with uh, allies and adversaries. And that's how things are structured. And in India, you have not just kind of not quite an avoidance of alliances, but just a country that doesn't do alliances. And its bureaucracy and its decision making is structured not to ally and so to, to find not just kind of strategically but to have the two systems now you know what access will india get to uh you know defense technology advanced technology uh, it's clear what allies get so now one of the things that the, you know both countries have had to think about well what does this kind of major defense mm-hmm. partnership uh, uh entail uh, but for a country like India, even though it's not getting a security commitment uh, and doesn't necessarily want one, what it does get from not just the U.S., but a number of it has close relationships uh, with US, uh, other U.S. allies, particularly Japan, is uh, especially as it's trying to enhance economic and defense capabilities, that's a huge reason for it. Um, and, and the other big thing is, you know, the, what it gets from a partnership is that with a shared challenge, and both see China as um, a shared challenge, uh, and its behavior in particular, um, I think there's a sense that uh, in India that it wants to see the US committed to the region and active there to serve as that balance uh, against China in a way that it wouldn't have admitted uh, 10, 15 years ago.
1: Sure, so China seems central to so many of the conversations in in the region. It's the most obvious competitor or adversary um, to the United States. It's uh, of obvious concern to American allies like Japan. It's, like you said, of obvious concern uh, to to India and other partners in the region as well. So how do you envision um, the role of China with regard to the alliances and partnerships that emerge in the Indo-Pacific region?
0: Well, I think that What's interesting, it, we talk a lot in the United States about um, you know the shared values uh, that we have, um, that our alliances are based on, that we have with many of our partners. Um, and that's true, but w- the reality is it has to be more than shared values because at the end of the day, it really has to come down to shared interests. Um, and so when you look at some of the... Um, the traction and the progress the United States has made in really like accelerating and deepening its um, defense alliances and partnerships in the last several years, let's all be honest about why, it's because the sense of shared threat and that sort of shared interest that people have converged around because of concerns about the rise of China and its behavior towards its neighbors has become so much more acute. Um, And so, While the the downside of that is that China is certainly enhancing its defense capabilities and doing so in a way that um, appears threatening to many of its neighbors because there is a lack of transparency, because you are not clear um, what might China actually do with all of these new capabilities that it has. Suddenly there are islands in the middle of the South China Sea. These appear threatening. China says they're not, but how do we know? So while that's not a good development, um, if you wanna find a silver lining in that situation, um, for the United States, I think it has brought allies and partners together um, around a really sense of a much more acute need to provide security and stability in the region than there was, let's say, in the 1990s, Um, the Cold War was over, and sure, there were lots of things going on, um, but maybe we can kind of, like, take our time Mm -hmm. on some of these problems. So maybe
1: some more centripetal forces sort of pulling people together in the face of a common rhetoric. In the the face of a common
0: problem, you know, it forces you to perhaps get past some of the concerns um, that you might have dithered about. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Right in in other circumstances. I mean, in the India relationship, it's a great example. I think both India and the United States have just, frankly, gotten over certain Mm -hmm. things in order to learn how to do business together.
2: Yeah, I mean, none of the differences, uh, the large differences, you know, in trade, or, for example, the fact that India buys certain equipment from Russia Mm -hmm. or that the U.S. doesn't like kind of um, the fact that India and Iran have a relationship, none of that stuff has gone away. Um, or that for India, that the US has a certain interest with Pakistan. But what they've done is uh, they've got better when they have this kind of pull factor, which is a shared concern about China's rise, its behavior, and they have a lot of common concerns, and I think a lot of um, allies and partners have this, and you could list them across kind of security domain, economic domain. Increasingly, we're talking about kind of sharp power, so in in kind of political and economic uh, um, influence terms. Um, and so i think you know it's created that pull factor which helps you then say we need to manage these differences they're not large enough we need to keep our kind of eye on the ball so to speak and so it it has created you know people sometimes used to complain oh my god you know the us is in the region it's asking us to do so there was this us supply but not necessarily demand and uh, there is this kind of demand factor a pull factor uh, in uh, there was a Cold War historian, Gair Lundsat who um, would talk about how uh, NATO and kind of the European projects, these were all, he used to use the term empire by invitation. But it wasn't imposed by the US, mm-hmm. it was kind of the Europeans pulling. We don't use obviously terms like empire anymore, but it <laughs> is kind of you know, a um, coalition, if nothing else, um, by invitation. Uh, and, and uh, but there has for, to
1: be mutual benefit for what's Yeah, happening. and I
2: think you've seen all the countries essentially say, these are all the countries who say, listen, uh, they reject the kind of Chinese idea of Asia for Asians and will say, we think of the US as an Asian or Indo-Pacific country. Even somebody, uh, you know, India used to complain about kind of the US being too present But you've heard the Indian Prime Minister say, you know, when I look east, which is their kind of Indo-Pacific strategy, it's called Act East now. But when I look east, I see the western shores of the United States, essentially saying this is a resident power. It's not an external power Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, is different um, from us. Sure.
1: If those are the centripetal forces, right? China sort of pulling alliances and partnerships together um, to face a sort of common perceived um, challenge. What are the centrifugal forces in the region? What are the forces that are maybe pulling on alliances and partnerships to challenge them or to make them more difficult to maintain?
0: I think that one of the big things over the last decade or more um, is the sense that in the post 9-11 era uh, the United States became extremely focused on um, the, quote, war on terror, on dealing with a lot of the problems that we had uh, in the Middle East, um, dealing with Afghanistan and other issues in in South Asia there, but that that became really um, such a preoccupation for the United States that it maybe did take its eye off the ball um, in East Asia. And that as much as we came and said, we're here, we're a Pacific power. Um, that country said, we're not entirely sure that we believe that as much anymore because it looks like you guys are pretty bogged down elsewhere. We're pretty by, busy. We're pretty busy, right? Um, and, and by the way, we all see that on a daily basis because you know your forces are far more there um, than we necessarily see them here everywhere that we would like to see them. It seems like you're spending a ton of money there as well. Um, and so why should we believe that you're really gonna be here? And the reality is China picked up the ball on that narrative and, you know, peddled it around the region fairly successfully. And I think, you know,
2: um, there you could think of this as the three C's problem, right? So um, two of them are related to U.S. Uh, or how allies and partners see the U.S. and one is kind of across the board. Um, I mean, I think the biggest C is China itself, which is, Each of the countries involved, all US allies and partners, but the US as well, has interactions and engagements with China, including a pretty significant economic relationship. So, this is not going to be, you know, people tend to use the word, term, new Cold War. This is not going to look like uh, US Soviet competition. That was significantly different. Um, These are all allies and partners uh, that have these kind of relationships, and to the extent possible, uh, as uh, Lindsay's often written about, the, especially countries in Southeast Asia, for example, they don't want to choose. Uh, they don't want to be asked. Of course, they want the U.S. to choose them, yes, but they don't reason. want to uh, make a choice. So it's, it's not, not, it's not quite choose.
1: so easy as sort of balancing and bandwagoning the, that the economic ties to China are going to be significant. In the region, sort of, no matter, no matter. Well, and what. for the
2: U.S. as well, right? Till recently, uh, when there is kind of this more competitive approach, there was a sense in the U.S. as well that not just because of economic reasons, but because you needed China's cooperation for a large set of kind of global goals, whether that was climate change, or whether that was cooperation in kind of. Uh, Various international institutions that essentially you needed to kind of keep the relationship or not push China on some of these concerns Mm -hmm. that people had. So I'd say that's kind of this one. I think the other two are one, you know, a couple of things that uh, Lindsay alluded to, which is uh, commitment and credibility. And the reason I'm drawing it up, credibility is more kind of uh, will you be there? And can we be assured, and it's not just a a problem that is specific to the Trump administration or President Trump. I mean, to some extent, allies are always unsure, right? You always want more. Right, um, allies
1: need always need reassurance. Yes. Farmers are always angry, <laughs> right? Peasants are always revolting, right? This yeah.
2: Is... yeah, And so, you know, to to some extent, you can say, well, this happens, but there has been kind of concern. You know, some of that might be alleviated by some of the assurances that Secretary Pompeo gave uh, in the Philippines recently. But then that's offset by some of the concerns uh, vis-à-vis South Korea and kind of downgrading those mm-hmm. exercises. I think the commitment issue is a little broader and it's 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 bipartisan which i think people in the region are paying attention to this debate in the u.s about retrenchment Um, and what they would like to see is rebalancing not retrenchment so i think that's those are kind of the issues and just kind of that's related to um, what they see as retrenchment i mean they are obviously concerned about um, resources in the region, but I think you could also fit in something that the U.S. were drawing from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, as part of kind of uh, essentially the U.S. pulling itself out of the game, and so essentially ceding some ground. Now the Japanese and the Australians and others have picked up uh, picked up uh, the ball, so to speak. We're using a lot of what? sports well, metaphors here. Yeah. It is the
1: NCAA. Yeah.
0: If I can pick up on what Tommy said, two really important points there. Um, you know... I think our allies and partners are watching very closely the domestic debates that are happening in the United Mm -hmm. States about foreign policy. It it turns Um, out
1: everybody has the same TV and the same internet. Yeah. Uh, Or sort of.
0: Right. Uh, So I was in um, Southeast Asia recently, and one of the very first questions that I got um, from a young like Indonesian millennial, and he could have asked me about anything, is he said, but can you tell me if the democrats come into power in the 2020 election does that mean the united states is going to pull out of asia right and that was the first thing on his mind i mean they're tracking mm-hmm. this stuff really closely and so um, i think we've hit a point uh, where um, our some of our asian allies and partners are like it's lovely that you guys come and you tell us in the speeches that you're a pacific power and you always will be but we're gonna like need to sort of see a little bit more proof of that because we're watching what is happening at home and we're not 100 percent right. convinced.
1: Because there are other statements that are being said that would suggest uh, right, this like isn't we're the
0: not case. we're not convinced that your Congress is going to give the budget to actually back up what it is that you say yeah. that you want to do, right? Or and to they keep have, the
1: lights on at home.
0: Uh, <laughs> and they have real concerns about that that are not invalid. Yeah. You know, it's lovely that you say that you're going to show up and you know, really be there for us. But at the end of the day, do the American people really want to fight this war? Um, And so they have questions about our our staying power and and our commitment in these places that are not just as simple as, you know, come out, say, but you should believe us and walk away.
2: Now, there is kind of a a healthy side of this, which is, what has happened because there are these concerns is you've seen or there's been a sense of a little bit of a vacuum etc is you've seen countries in the region who might not have otherwise taken the lead on some things uh, japan being a perfect example you know take the lead in a way it hasn't in the past it's actually had for example uh, a lot of investments given a lot of uh, overseas development assistance etc but it's never kind of thought about it in a strategic political way at least not portrayed it that way but both on kind of taking, uh, you know, stepping up to the plate with the, uh, mixing my sports metaphors now, uh, (laughs) with the TPP, but also, you know, in terms of, um, uh, with this quality infrastructure uh, initiative, kind of uh, connectivity, bringing funding, bringing expertise, but in in a kind of much more substantial, sustainable way than China's One Belt, One Road. Um, And you've seen, you know, for example,
0: Australia now say we're going to step up in the South Pacific. Their policy is actually called the step up. up. Yeah, (laughs) which I was like, anyone who names your policy like after a 1990s cheerleading movie is awesome. There's probably an Aussie (laughs)
2: reference there that we don't get or miss. Um, You've seen kind of... Even this idea—I know the ASEANs don't like the idea of the Quad—but what is the Quad if you if you disaggregate the kind of four countries doing something, something together, like you know, an Avengers movies where <laughs> all the all the superheroes like, are coming together? Like,
1: what's the what was the one with the rings, like the? Oh, Power Rangers! Oh uh-huh. well,
2: see that now. I I don't think your younger audience is gonna get that, which is why I use the Avenger uh, <laughs> Avengers reference. But you know, if you look at individually what these countries have done, and can you essentially... just for,
1: just to make sure everybody's on the sure, same page? Sorry. Can okay. you name the four?
2: The Quad is this quadrilateral um, kind of almost consultation mechanism, uh, which is Australia, Japan, India, and the U.S. Um, Uh, they have a few things in common. I mean, uh, they don't have in common that they're all allies because obviously India is not, but they're all democracies. But the other thing is you can think of this as a coalition of the capable. I mean, these are countries that it started, the idea, the the germ of the idea was in their response to the uh, December 2004 tsunami in the Indian Ocean, and they just came together um, and worked together diplomatically and militarily Um, You know, there was an attempt to do this in 2007, it kind of died a very early death, um, and it's been revived recently. But what they've done is even if you don't look at what they're doing together, and there's some some conversation about what the limits and the possibilities of what they can do together, but if you look at the trilaterals within that, the US, Japan, Australia, the Japan, Australia, India, the US, Japan, India, uh, they're doing quite a bit, whether in infrastructure, whether in maritime security, You also see, or HADR, uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Um, But you also see, or, or regional connectivity. But what you do see is, even on the bilateral side or individual side, each country can essentially, everybody doesn't have to do everything everywhere, right? You can have India saying we'll do more in the Indian Ocean, the you know, or they can whatever their version of step up in the Indian Ocean. Um, Indian Ocean uh, edition. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> step up Indian Ocean
1: edition. The sequel or Yeah,
2: so I think this does also, you know, it. And I think if they do more in a very classic burden-sharing kind of sort of way, it can help American leaders in the future say to the American public that listen, we're not in this alone. Mm-hmm. You are not doing this alone. You are not the only ones actually bearing this burden, and I think you'd see most of the countries in the region say, actually, they would support the, the U.S. strengthening itself as a primary signal, but also a build, uh, You know, right. it will make this more sustainable if the U.S. And then it's sustainable is and in.
1: efficient, effective, um, in in all of in all of the ways, and that nobody has to be able, be able to do everything or to do everything on their on their own. Um, What do you think are the most significant opportunities for allies and partners in the Indo-PACOM region if we look maybe five years or 10 years out?
0: Um, I actually think, I guess picking up on what Tombe was just talking about, that one of the more interesting developments in recent years is that you have seen countries like Japan and Australia and others essentially say, we're willing to kind of um, pick up the ball on on building greater multilateral cooperation in in the region rather than just waiting for the United States to do it. And I think that's a really important development. Um, And it's one that's been kind of happening organically. Um, Because one of the greatest challenges of the way that uh, Asian, what we call, regional security architecture uh, developed is that it was very US centric, right? It's Mm -hmm. what we call this hub and spoke model of the United States in the middle uh, with all these relationships with individual players, but they didn't necessarily have great uh, relationships or connectivity to each other. Um, And so increasingly, rather than waiting on the United States to sort of force people to come together and get along and cooperate, uh, they're looking for ways to do that on their own. And I think when you think forward about what is a sustainable sort of model for um, security cooperation look like in the region, it has to be something um, that countries other than the United States want to figure out how do we build this organically together in a way that works for us and is sustainable?
2: It mm-hmm. also kind of stems the Chinese argument often, right? That this is a US-imposed right. uh, vision of the region where you have countries in the region essentially saying, listen, we, we, are, we support this kind of view of this free, open, inclusive region. Um, which means, you know, China can be part of it if it follows the rules. Uh, but a rules-based order um, where these, this is things that the countries themselves want from, uh, the region and their cooperation. And you know, this is clearly something that you saw, you know, the Obama administration, uh, Secretary Carter used to call it a network security partnership approach. And we've seen it really um, take off in kind of the last, um, I would say, five or seven years. Yeah. But I think particularly in the last couple of years where um, there has been a sense that, listen, you can't wait, um, that this has to be done. And so I think five years from now, you'll see uh, much more interoperability and i think also coordination on things like everything from you know where can these countries together um, uh, whether alone whether bilaterally trilaterally including with the us where can they offer solutions in terms of infrastructure um, that is uh, better in some ways that's a better option uh, than something china is offering through the one belt one road project or you know can they provide security assistance on uh, Again, it's all. It doesn't have to be the U.S. It, I think all countries want the U.S. involved, but I think you'll see, at least if we all things remain equal, we we probably see five years from now um, more of this uh, rather than less of this. And in some ways, it's good because they're getting to know each other in ways that they're developing habits of cooperation that didn't necessarily exist, uh, you know, other than as as Lindsay said, through the U.S. Great.
1: So lots of challenges, but also many opportunities. I think looking forward in the region, lots to consider between China, uh, but also with India, Japan, um, the Philippines, other major partners and allies for the United States. So thanks so much for joining me tonight, thanks for the sports metaphors, thanks for <laughs> Very mixed the sports cheerleading, metaphors. Yeah. Uh-huh. sports. So, so many things that we learn here on The War Room, <laughs> um, and thanks for sticking with me uh, for a late night of recording, and so we're signing off on a better piece.
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Piece, the War Room Podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com. armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.